Hello, it's Andrew Harrison, the producer here. All of us here at the bunker were distraught at the disappearance of the journalist Dom Phillips on a reporting trip into Amazonia with his friend, the Indigenous Peoples campaigner Bruno Pereira. Dorian and I worked with Dom on Mixmac, and he's been a great help to this podcast. The news from Brazil of official indifference has grown steadily worse, and Dom's family have now accepted that he will not be found alive. We are hoping that a proper investigation will bring the truth to light and give Dom's family some measure of peace. In the meantime, we're rerunning today, unedited, the podcast that Dom made with Dorian in May 2020 at the height of the COVID pandemic. You can hear Dom's sharp and inquiring mind, his sense of humour and his love of Brazil where he made his home and where he wrote the stories of people who are usually denied a voice. Dom was a proper journo. We're thinking of him and we hope you will too. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Dorian Linsky. The response of different countries to coronavirus has revealed underlying strengths and weaknesses in the body politic. Brazil's right-wing populist Jair Bolsonaro has been reluctant to take the virus seriously. In March, he was calling it a media fantasy and a bit of a cold and defiantly mingling with supporters. Last Tuesday, the country saw its largest daily rise in COVID-19 deaths just after Bolsonaro suggested that the worst was over. When he was asked about the death toll recently, he said, so what? I'm sorry. What do you want me to do? Is the Brazilian Trump showing any kind of leadership and is Brazil finding ways to cope despite him? My guest today has lived in Brazil since 2007. In a former life, he was the editor of Mixmag and therefore my first employer in journalism. He has since reported from Brazil for titles including the New York Times and the Washington Post and his work currently appears regularly in The Guardian. Hello, Dom. Thanks for joining us. Hello. uh, Thank you for asking me. Um, How has everyday life in in your part of Brazil changed over the last eight weeks? What what, What kind of restrictions have you experienced? Um, well, where I live in in what's called the south zone of Brazil, of Rio, um, everything is a lot of most people are staying at home, but not everybody is staying at home and less and less people are staying at home. Um, supermarkets uh, are open, pharmacies are open, restaurants are open just for deliveries. There are more and more people on the beach or, on, or, or in the parks kind of coming out Um but if you go a little bit further out or if you go into the favelas in Rio where more than a million people live, there are a lot more people on the streets because um, social isolation for them is a lot more difficult because of social conditions, because they have less money, because a lot of them work in the service industries that are still functioning. So what's happening is that Brazil did sort of go into isolation actually quite early around the same time that London did. Um, and did sort of flatten the curve a little bit. And that has started crumbling over the last few weeks. And one of the reasons for that has been Bolsonaro's rhetoric has been quite influential. And so just at the point where the curve is is, is starting to go up a bit, more people are coming outside again. Uh, and so we're now seeing, you know, the rate of, of deaths and cases increase, even though nobody really knows because there's a huge lack of testing in Brazil. Um, and so there's really a kind of a, a class divide of, People who are poorer, people who have less money, less economic conditions are going out more. Um, Middle class people are able to isolate in their apartments a little bit more and get deliveries and everything else to them. And then on top of that, there's the kind of hardcore Bolsonaro supporters who are are having demonstrations and going outside and... uh, uh, protesting against all of this. There's actually, I was just reading this morning, there's a camp of them right outside the Congress uh, who are arguing for a military intervention in Congress. They want, they're all wearing military fatigues. 
and doing sort of like uh, standing up in, in a parade ground formation, holding up signs written hunger because they follow Bolsonaro's argument that the, uh, you know, that this isolation should stop because the damage being caused to the economy is even bigger than the damage that will be caused by the virus, um, that people should go back to work. Just adding to that, that yesterday, as he tried to put pressure on uh, Brazil's institutions to make people go back to work, Bolsonaro, some of his ministers and businessmen walked from the presidential headquarters across this big square to the Supreme Court in a totally unscheduled meeting and kind of forced a meeting with the Supreme Court in which they tried to uh, persuade the Supreme Court to, um, to start opening Brazil up again. So it's a very uh, worrying situation. Uh, people are locked down, less and less people locked down, and uh, that's really where we're at in Brazil right now. Because I was reading about in uh, in the reports of Don Phillips, in fact, um, that various sort of state governors were uh, defying Bolsonaro and, and, and putting down quite kind of you know, responsible restrictions. Um, the courts, too, you mentioned. So is it a kind of... Um, analogous to what's going on in the US, where where Trump seems to be um, spending half his time, you know, at war with various Democratic governors, is there a kind of is is there sort of large parts of the kind of uh, Brazilian government structure um, at odds with the president? Uh, yes, that is true, and there are similarities in that Brazil, like the United States, is is a sort of federation of states. So states, there are twenty six states and a federal district in Brazil. They have a lot of autonomy. They run the police forces. They have their own laws and taxes and things like that. So a lot of gov- most of the governors were uh, were in opposition to Bolsonaro. They were introducing these isolation measures, and Bolsonaro wasn't. Some of them have now started relaxing measures. Um, free states uh, started introducing in the last couple of days very strict lockdown. One was Marignan in the northeast, which is one of the poorest states in Brazil. They locked down the capital and three other cities. Another is Ceará in the northeast. They, they locked down uh, the capital, Fortaleza. And another is Pará, which is a state in the Amazon, uh, which locked down the capital, Belém. Um, but at the same time, some of them are sort of going in different directions. So one of the worst hit cities is a city called Manaus, which is a, a city of nearly 2 million people in the Amazon, which is where the health services have completely collapsed. Uh, there are ambulances driving around that aren't able to, to, to unload patients at hospitals. There are mass graves. It, it's a really, really difficult situation. And yet it hasn't locked down fully. There hasn't been a complete uh, adherence to social isolation. And they've now decided that it would be a good idea to open churches. Going back to Pará, we talked about the, the capital of Belém, which is locking down in a full, full-on lockdown, has decided the mayor of Belém, in contrast to the governor of the state, decided that domestic maids were an essential service and should keep working in Brazil. Uh, and are you seeing here like a split, like the political split? Um, that we're seeing in various parts of the world. So therefore, it's the kind of, it's the right or certainly sort of Bolsonaro's supporters who are kind of against the lockdown or for, or for looser versions. And it tends to be the opposition um, that are doing the tighter lockdowns. Is, it, is, there, is there that cleaner split or is it often come down to quite kind of local characters and local circumstances? It, it, it's not quite as clean because what happened is uh, two right-wing governors, fairly right-wing governors, the governors of São Paulo and Rio, which are the two most populous and most important, really, economically states in Brazil, 
they were both bolts. They both supported Bolsonaro when he was elected in 2018. The governor of Rio, Wilson Witzel, is a former judge, very, very far right wing. But they've since split with Bolsonaro and they both introduced uh, isolation measures, not quite lockdown. I think Rio might do that soon. Uh, and have, have been at odds with Bolsonaro, publicly arguing and slinging insults at him, and he slings insults back at them. So that's two right-wing governors that really kind right. of led the isolation measures. But beyond them, in other states, uh, we talked about these two states, Marignan and Sierra in the northeast, they are left-wing governors, and they have right. uh, you know, introduced lockdown as well. So it's not quite. And then in other places, in the south of Brazil, a state called Santa Catarina, that was a, a Bolsonaro supporter, and he did induce a lockdown, and then he kind of... Uh, relaxed it a little bit and then he decided to bring it back and there was um, a sort of emblematic video at the point where a city in the south of brazil one of the most german cities in brazil because the south of brazil is where a lot of germans uh, immigrated in the early 20th century a city called blumenau which holds an oktoberfest opened up a shopping center a week or so ago and there was a video of all these people streaming into the shopping center while a saxophonist played Credence Clearwater's uh, Have You Ever Seen the Rain? All wearing masks, flooding into the shopping center because the, 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 the mayor had decided to open it. And in the following week, uh, the coronavirus cases uh, shot up. And that was a Bolsonaro supporter. So it's, it's, it's a bit of a mix, really. Well, reading um, about, about this sort of fragmented response and some very unhelpful messages from the top, I was quite surprised to see the official death toll, even though it's rising fast, is still below, I believe the latest figure that I looked at was still below 10,000, um, which compared to uh, the US, the UK, Italy, Spain, seems quite low. Are those figures reliable? No, not at all. Uh, there's very little testing in Brazil, uh, very little of a PCR testing, which is the more accurate. They did uh, start buying the, the serological tests, the, the quicker tests, um, but I think they've only got a few million of those. Uh, I wrote a story a few weeks ago about how doctors were saying, well, we're seeing a lot more deaths than this. It can't possibly be as low as, uh, as, as what the official figures say. We don't really know, but just to give you an example, uh, a recent study of, uh, by a news site called G1 here in Brazil took the numbers of deaths from notaries uh, where deaths are registered in five major cities, including Rio, São Paulo, Manaus, Recife, and I think it was Fortaleza, and found that up until 25th of April, there were 6,000 more deaths, and that would have more than doubled, way more right. than doubled total at that time. And that's only five cities, bearing in mind that there are, and it's spreading at different speeds in different places in Brazil, but there are 211 million people in Brazil. What the real total is, we don't know. What we do know is uh, cemeteries in places like Sao Paulo, which has been the epicenter, one of the epicenters of, of, of the pandemic so far, have been furiously digging more graves. Uh, and then in Manaus, as I mentioned, they, they had to dig, dig these mass graves. So you've got videos on social media and in news reports of people lined up in front of a huge trench where they're putting coffins in and people actually opening coffins to make sure that their relative was was the, the right person, was in the right coffin, which was hugely dangerous. At mm. one point in Manaus, they were actually going to start stacking them on top of each other, but there was an outcry and they decided not to do that. In Rio, they've been uh, putting up these vertical cemeteries, which they already had in Rio, but they've, they've been putting more of those in. So we don't really know what the real figures are, but they're a lot higher 
right. than, uh, than, is, than is actually being reported. Um, and, you know, this is a developing country. And so it's, and as we said, it's quite decentralized in many ways. So I think there's a lot of ignorance about this. I saw a figure today, I'm just trying to find it here, which was uh, something like 1.6 million people are believed to be infected in Brazil. Um, and at the same time, I think also worth remembering that Brazil is, is further back on the curve. It's not as far advanced as the United. It's a little bit. It's a few weeks behind the United States. So it could get it could get quite serious over the next few weeks. I talked to a doctor the other day in Fortaleza, and he said we are on the point of collapsing like Manaus, which has been the, the most emblematic collapse so far. Rio is getting close to that point as well. I mean, they're opening campaign hospitals. It did have a head start on stuff like this, but the other side is that. You've got Bolsonaro and his supporters walking around and doing demonstrations and mingling together. And so this 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 crumbling of social isolation is, is having an impact on Monday in Belém, the city I mentioned earlier in the Amazon, the social isolation was something like 48%. You know? yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose we should talk a little bit about Bolsonaro himself. He's often grouped with the likes of Trump, Orban and Erdogan, um, you know, as this kind of populist strongmen. They don't all have the same characteristics. They operate within different political systems, different kind of national traditions. What kind of a, you know, in in, in as a way to explain this sort of very strange behaviour and rhetoric, what kind of a politician is he? Like, what what really motivates him is there an ideology behind it is it a sort of power of lust and vanity like what drives him bolsonaro um he's an interesting figure he was what for a long time for about 30 years he was in congress as a sort of backbench independent far-right caricature basically what they call in brazil the lower clergy a really marginal figure and uh I remember talking to him briefly a couple of times during the impeachment campaign against the leftist president, uh, Dilma Rousseff, who was impeached in 2016. And he would—he was like a sort of extreme minor figure you might go to for an outrageous quote. Very, very right wing. A professor in Rio once described him as a troll, which I think is quite an accurate, an accurate description. He, he would put out videos in around 2016 saying that foreigners were trying to take over the Amazon and install uh, foreign states to steal its resources. Deadly serious. But what he did very cleverly was, uh, as, 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 as this populist wave sort of went round the world and people like Trump got elected, he started a campaign pretty much on his own with one other guy and started going around Brazil, spent a couple of years going to all kinds of places in Brazil that nobody ever went to, the politicians never went to, building up this support. And he is kind of like, Brazilians sometimes describe him as like your slightly outrageous uncle at the family barbecue that says a few extreme things, but you don't really take that serious. He has a very popular touch. People respond to him emotionally. He has a very strong emotional appeal. He is very extreme. He is very, very extreme right wing uh, to the point of homophobic comments, racist comments, unbelievable comments, comments in support of Brazil's military dictatorship, comments in support of torture. He would pop up on talk shows and chat shows and kind of like wacky late night chat shows on cable TV and stuff like that. His sons are all politicians. But this support began growing around him. And as the uh, the leftist workers' party 
sort of completely screwed up its campaign. And it will also say that Lula was taken out of the campaign because he had a, uh, a conviction and went to jail. And he tried to pass the baton on to his successor and a combination of things, plus the fact that he got stabbed during campaigning. This, this snowball gathered around Bolsonaro. And, and what seemed impossible a couple of years ago came true and he won the election. And one of the things that really drove that was his very, very clever use of social media, of WhatsApp groups, and of basically lies. Uh, let's not call it fake news. Let's just call it lies. I'll give you an example um, that was very clever in their campaigning because what happened in Brazil was there was a huge corruption scandal that very much impacted a left-wing government that had been in power for over a decade that had had lots of success and a boom and an economic boom and taken lots of people out of poverty. But was now in a recession and was facing uh, a big corruption scandal. And he sort of painted them as morally decadent in many different ways, not just because of corruption. He blamed them for crime. He recruited evangelical Christians, which is a growing demographic in Brazil. And so he would, he would say they're in favor of uh, eroticizing children. He um, <clears throat> distorted uh, a, a sex education proposal that the government had thought about introducing and never brought in to make it sound like they 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 uh, were providing pornography to children, basically describing them as paedophiles, criminals. And this was all really affected because they just kept bombarding people with uh, this fake news on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook, on WhatsApp groups that are impossible to control because you don't know how many people. But, you know, the stuff that I saw during the elections is absolutely staggering that a mainstream politician would say stuff like that. Um and this kind of stuff was really effective. And his sons as well, uh, one of his sons, and, and this big wave got Bolsonaro elected and a load of deputies with him got elected. But because he's he's a very extreme character, he's not a negotiator. And so he got elected saying he was not going to do the old pork barrel horse trading politics that always happened in Brazil. It was going to be different. It was going to be anti-corruption. And since then, he's basically fought with everyone uh, and fallen out with everyone. So he's a really... Uh, aggressive, polarizing figure, increasingly signaling to people wanting a military intervention, like this group of people camped up outside the Congress. He's fallen out with one of his biggest trophies in his government, who was his uh, minister of justice, who a guy called Sergio Moro, who was a judge who had been very active in this, you know, corruption uh, campaign, in this, corru in, in this corruption investigation. He left flinging a load of accusations at Bolsonaro. Um, but Bolsonaro still has a third of the population on, on his side, according to the polls. In your story about Moro's resignation, you quoted a journalist saying that in normal circumstances, this might spark mass protests, mass protests being the only thing that would sort of, you know, that might prompt impeachment proceedings. And he said, told you, ironically, social distancing is Bolsonaro's ally right now. Is there a chance then that he could ride out an otherwise very dangerous scandal uh, because of the timing, that there is just no space for sort of popular unrest, unless presumably you line up outside the uh, the, the main building in military formation. Um, I think there is, yeah. I think there's a reasonable chance of that. If He's got a kind of self, self-destructive aspect, so he might just completely blow it, but he needs his popularity to fall way below around the 30% that he's got. And he also needs, uh, the Brazilian Congress is very split. There's like over 30 parties in there. And there's a group of kind of conservative, smaller parties called the Big Centre. 
And they're basically utterly mercenary. If they'll do anything as long as people they recommend they're getting high-paid jobs and they've got influence in different government bodies around the country. Bolsonaro has always been against them, but he's now giving them uh, support and giving them key jobs and allowing them to nominate people for key jobs. And that he's doing that because there are, I think, 36 impeachment requests against him, and he's hoping to buy their support. So he might temporarily buy their support to offset any impeachment process going forward because it needs like two thirds of the lower house to approve it. But at the same time, that's quite dangerous because these people are very mercenary and they might be temporarily on board. And if they think Bolsonaro is losing it, they may change their minds. That's kind of what they did with Dilma Rousseff in 2016. She had their support. She lost it and they impeached her. So it's a very unstable situation right now. And he also fired Health Minister Louise Henrique Mandetta um, in, a, in a kind of row over the response to the virus. Um, are there prominent ministers or, and, or scientific advisors um, who have enough of a platform to, to sort of counteract him? Or does he just remove people that disagree with him? Um, no, you're absolutely right. He removes people who disagree with him. He removes people who disagree with him and he removes people who become too popular. And so six, eight months ago, observers and political analysts would describe three groups in the Congress, which was the kind of ideal, ideal, idea, idealists, the, the really far-right idealists, really extreme people, which would, would include the Bolsonaro family uh, and some key ministers like the foreign minister who basically wants to return to the Crusades. And there were pragmatists, which was the uh, the Justice Minister, Sergio Moro, the Health Minister, uh, and the Finance Minister, Paolo Guedes. And then there was the military. The pragmatists are being forced out. Mandetta was one of those. Moro was one of those. The people who might be very far right wing, but it's still intelligent. The military is still there and increasing their sort of profile. Like they're kind of moving into the health ministry. There are loads more military in the health ministry. There's a general, which is very key in the health ministry now. And these sort of ideological extremists are still there as well. Um, and these ideological extremists in which, you know, as I say, I include the Bolsonaro family and his sons, um, are very influenced by a, an astrologist come professor, a Brazilian guy who lives in the United States called Olavo de Carvalho, who is like this traditionalist, uh, hardcore Catholic, very, very far right wing. Um, and he gives these online philosophy lessons and he's very close to Steve Bannon. Uh, and and, and that, they're, they're sort of very similar to the alt-right in the United States. And a lot of what they do is very similar to the alt-right. They do a lot of this dog whistling, you know, where they send out a very extreme right-wing message that only certain extreme right-wing groups will understand, for instance. We know, uh, looking at, say, for example, how uh, solid Trump's base is, not, not perhaps the support that he had in 2016, but his base. And so we know that there's always going to be a percentage of people who are just going to kind of stick by these figures too thick or thin. But you're talking about, um, you know, mass graves and rows about whether you, you know, you're, you're allowed to sort of stack coffins on top of one another, um, which seems like the sort of thing that might dent uh, a president's popularity. How has his how has his sort of approval ratings fared during this crisis? Has there been a, a notable dip, or has it? You know, have you had you had the rally round the flag effect that we've seen elsewhere? Actually, it's gone up. Uh, he had he has taken a hit. He has lost support. He's basically 
there were different people that voted for Bolsonaro when he was elected, if he had like 54% of the votes, I think. Um, and there was people who just wanted the left out, um, conservative Brazilians, evangelical Christians, these kind of people. And there was this real hardcore who were like Bolsonaro above everything. He's still got those. So he's lost support. So he's down to this kind of hardcore 30%. He's lost a lot of the more moderate conservatives who voted for him because it was him or the left. So it was a kind of, you know, they, they, they would choose him. They knew it was a bit of a risk. They thought he was quite extreme, but, you know, they voted for him. And, 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 and a lot of the people who supported the corruption uh, investigation as well. Now with Sergio Moro leaving the government, a lot of them have, have, have abandoned Bolsonaro as well. So what's happening is the support that he's got, that he's left with, is evangelical Christians, like really fundamentalists, not all evangelical Christians, because they're not all right wing, but a lot of them who are very fundamentalist, anti-abortion, anti-gay, this kind of stuff. And these real ideological, hardcore, very extreme right wingers. And what we've seen in recent weeks in Brazil, uh, every night at 8.30 is the traditional pan bashing protest where people uh, bash pots and pans at their windows and scream Bolsonaro out. Uh, and these have been happening in a lot of areas that, that had voted very heavily for Bolsonaro, like here in Rio de Janeiro, Baja de Tijuca, which is where he lives, uh, for instance. So, yeah, he's lost a lot of support, but not all of it. Well, I mean, that, that sort of sounds promising, but obviously, like, the strength of the opposition always matters um, in, in these cases. He's up for re-election in 2022. God yeah. knows what's going to happen, uh, you know, with the virus, with the economy in that time. Uh, we don't ask people to make predictions, but how are his chances looking at this point? Do they depend on how the crisis plays out? Do they depend on on the left or, I don't know, like a more centrist party kind of getting their act together? How, how vulnerable is he? I think he's vulnerable. Uh, and I think there are strong candidates on the right who, who are emerging. I mentioned the two governors of Sao Paulo and Rio. The Sao Paulo governor, João Doria, is a very powerful, uh, very neoliberal, uh, market-friendly candidate. He's probably going to stand for president in 2022. And the far-right governor of Rio, Wilson Witzel, he's very clearly stated that he will stand as well. So on one hand, you're going to see the vote on the right split. Uh, there's a guy in the centre who's a, who's a very popular TV presenter who does a lot of uh, shows that are very popular with lower-income Brazilians called Luciano Hook, who nearly stood last time. He may well stand as a kind of very centre, almost like a Macron, something like that. And on the left, Lula, uh, who's the towering political figure in Brazil, is still not allowed to stand because he has, has all these court cases against him and he served 500 days in prison and he's out, but those, those are not over. So he probably can't stand, and there isn't uh, a clear left-wing candidate, basically, who could step up instead of him. He sort of dominates the scene so much, and his party is very powerful. They don't want anyone else to come forward. So there isn't uh, a left-wing, you know, a, a clear winner in the, on the left who could, who could take that mantle. There just isn't one. So it's very, very fluid. I think it's a little bit like the States, you know, could Trump win? Possible. Could Bolsonaro win? It is, it's not impossible, you know, if it came down to him versus Lula's uh, choice, for instance. So somebody who just sort of, you know, living in living in Brazil in the middle of this kind of what is a frightening time for everyone, is your sort of, um, is your, are you just sort of hoping, are you just sort of rooting for these kind of, you know, the more responsible local governors 
uh, the courts, basically any counterweight possible to kind of, is that where the only hope lies of kind of, um, you know, flattening the curve of kind of reducing the death toll? Because it doesn't seem like there's any, you're not, you can't, you're not, you can't expect anything better from Bolsonaro. So it's all basically about, you know, how many people can, can kind of try and uh, keep the casualties down despite him. Yes, I, th- I think you're right. There, there are quite strong institutions in Brazil, which has been a democracy since around about 1985, uh, when it first had indirect elections after a dictatorship. And there is quite a strong justice system. It's quite polit- politicised. There is a Congress, which is quite noisy. There are more reasonable voices in the, the head of the lower house, the speaker of the lower house, who's, who's, who's basically the third in charge in the country, and the Supreme Court and the Senate and the judiciary as well. So, and even amongst some of the generals are more logical voices at least. So, so these are, they're kind of pulling him back all the time. And, and, and I think he would have gone a lot further if it wasn't for this. And so that is in a way kind of encouraging the health minister that he got rid of, for instance, who was a right wing health minister, but a doctor and, you know, logical and clear and, you know, clear in his, his briefings and everything else. So these people do hold him back. He's not in complete control. He does have a certain amount of control. He does have a certain amount of influence, but not everyone. So it's really divided. It's a really polarized, divided country. And you mentioned earlier on about state governors on the left and right, which positions have they taken? Fair enough. But Brazilians on the left and right have, have you know, they're very much split. You know, the people on the far right just want, let's go back to work, open up the economy. It's just a little flu, as Bolsonaro famously said. A lot of people have abandoned Bolsonaro because they are freaked out by his response and they think it's uh, extremely cruel. I wanted to mention one other thing, if it's time, actually. As a culture secretary called Regina Duarte, who uh, was a famous actress. She's, she's an older woman now, but she was a famous soap star actress. Soap, soap operas are really big in Brazil. And she's his, she's a, a, a rabid sort of Bolsonaro supporter, and she's his culture secretary. And she's one of the latest that uh, is being, what they say, they say in Portuguese, is being fried by Bolsonaro, one of the latest people that they turn on within the government and start briefing against and criticizing. Uh, she did a an absolute car crash TV interview last night in which she downplayed the dictatorship. She sang. She said, oh, you guys are so morbid about uh, COVID-19, lighten up, we're still alive, stop dragging coffins around. You know, if, if you can imagine, I don't, I don't know who's the most famous soap star in Britain at the moment, but it's you know, <laughs> it, it, absolutely staggering. People watching this going, oh, my God, what is she doing? So these kind of things really don't help him. You know, mm. really don't help him. That people just more and more, I think, even people on his side uh, or people who voted for him or people who hate the left are a little bit like, this is just too far. This is just too nuts and too scary. So it's a very fluid situation. It's no picnic in Britain, um, but it sounds genuinely nerve wracking uh, with a guy like that in charge. So um, take care uh, and thanks for joining us, Dom. That was okay. Thank you very much. Very informative. You can read Dom's reporting from Brazil in The Guardian. New Bunker Dailies are available every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Friday with a longer weekly episode every Wednesday. Stay safe. The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky and produced by Andrew Harrison. Jacob Archbold was the assistant producer and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The Bunker Daily is a podcaster's production. <laughs>